If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to Crypto with Accountants, powered by Bitwave, where we talk with technologists and crypto enthusiasts as we discuss current events in economy, politics, technology, and digital assets with thought leaders from around the world, hosted by Pat White and Rafael Casas. Today, we have a fantastic guest and our dear friend, Jared Klee. For those of you that don't know Jared, Jared is the Vouch Director of Web3. Before Vouch, he co-founded a blockchain-based fintech startup and held multiple roles at IBM, including leading digital assets at IBM Blockchain and founding IBM Watson Risk and Compliance. You can find him on Twitter at Klee Beard and publishing weekly at finance, uh, Fintech and Finance, so kind of all over all over social media with some amazing nuggets of information. Jared, so good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Raphael, Pat, so good to be here. Appreciate you hosting me. Yeah, this should be really fun. It's a it's a great time to be talking about all the all the various things that you've had your fingers in over the years. It's a good time to be talking about all of them. So, what uh, uh well, welcome. So, hey, let's where we always like to start with these things is is tell us a little about like how you got into Web three in general. Like where uh, what was your first foray into into all this craziness? Well, it's my my whole life's coming back around now because it's. As 2016, 2017, the ICO craze got going and so on, I was still deep in the AI world. If we go back to, to that time, I was helping launch IBM Watson and was still writing as we continued to build that out. We'll, we'll go deeper. That's now coming back around with OpenAI and ChatGPT. So I saw this Bitcoin thing happen. I saw the ICO going, you know what? I'm, I'm already up to my eyeballs in, in AI. I've got my hands full. Let me focus on that. Keep building that out. And slowly but surely, it just kept hitting the news, kept hitting the news. I was like, okay, I'll pay a little bit of attention, ended up down the rabbit hole. But now here I am, focused on crypto, focused on all this stuff. And the AI world comes back around, and I'm, I'm struggling, Pat, with the same thing again. Like, I want to keep focused on crypto. This stuff's real cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, I, I actually always really enjoy, and, and this is maybe like morbid curiosity, but I always actually really do enjoy talking to people who worked on Watson about the current craze of AI. I mean, how... How do you feel? I mean, is it does it like tear at your soul that IBM never quite got it right, or was IBM just too early, or or was IBM always kind of vaporware? I mean, that's I know that's sort of a hard answer to, question to answer, but it's uh, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean it's 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 mixed emotion. So if you actually yeah. look at, if you look under the covers what IBM is doing today, they've actually done an enormous amount in and around AI from a research standpoint, from a commercialization. Certainly there are aspects of the Watson business, I think, got out a little ahead of itself. When you go back to like the Bob Dylan commercial, yes, I think that was the marketing was a little ahead of where the product was. What, what blows my mind, Pat, is when I look at some of the stuff that was being developed, I mean, patent level back then, research paper back then. I remember sitting down with the research team, IBM Research um, up in upstate New York right after they had written the original paper for how to do summarization. And that was my, I mean, that was years in the making the work to get there. And now you sit there, you look at what ChatGPT spits out. The time from what went from a paper to being realized as commercially available, everybody can use it product. I mean, had you asked me then, I would have bet decades before that made its way into the mainstream. It's unbelievable the rate and pace at which stuff is now happening. It it is. I mean, it's and that's really the argument about AI is that it is going to go exponential here, and then the and then the robots are going to turn us all into paper clips. So it is a it is of course like a super interesting like part of all of it. Did on being clippy? Yeah, <laughs> I do. It is. Oh gosh, it is so interesting because I mean, one of the things I was wondering about Watson is if they if they hadn't focused on what they had been focused on, which was kind of healthcare and enterprise. If they had done more of a generalized language model, if they would have sort of gotten there a little bit faster than everybody else. But that's not really you know it's it's what I there's this funny about IBM. Like I have I have nothing against IBM. I've never worked there, so I don't have a lot of detail. But I 
I do always worry when I see IBM getting into different spaces because they bring a lot of marketing muscle and it's very debatable, like the amount of like deep technical muscle they bring to certain spaces. They bring marketing, they bring research, but then like in terms of like products that get out the door and change the world, it's been a while since like IBM's had something really cool like that. So it always makes me a little bit nervous when I see them in different spaces and like blockchain was sort of like that. If you go Um, under the covers at IBM, it's hard to categorize it as a single company. So if yeah. you go look at every time you swipe a credit card, it's still hitting a mainframe. Every time you go book a flight, it's still hitting a mainframe deep down in the bowels. And when we talk about mainframes and we could joke about them being 50-year-old refrigerators that don't hold, hold <laughs> beer well, but if you actually go and look at the developments that have been happening on the mainframe, you have a four-year cycle. And what they're shipping from an encryption standpoint, from a processing standpoint, there's a reason it's still in the bowels of among your biggest enterprises in the world. It's for certain types of workloads, the things are really good. Yeah, That's true across an enormous chunk of the portfolio. So certainly a company at IBM scale, we could poke and prod and find soft spots where it's like, okay, marking got out ahead. We we lack innovation. If you look at the portfolio as a whole, if you go onto the covers, there's spots where the company is, has been and remains the best in the world, bar none of what they do. Yeah. Now, I think part of what's changed in the public domain is IBM's not consumer facing in any yeah. respect to the yeah. word anymore. I mean, go the 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 uh, ThinkPad. My, that my you first see, computer IBM's was public. a was a PC Junior, which was an IBM. It was an IBM clone back in the day. So that was, and that I means it's been a long time since someone's bought a, an IBM uh, computer. I mean, it's been a long ass time the, since that's the, happened. The retail the the ThinkPads were spun out years yeah. ago. The uh, the registers that you see at the supermarket years ago. IBM's just not consumer facing anymore. Yeah. So it becomes very difficult unless you're kind of in the bowels of say a bank or of a hospital or of a booking system for Amtrak. It's very difficult to see where IBM is continuing to push the envelope. If you go live in these massive IT shops that are running some of the world's biggest businesses and some of the world's uh, biggest consumer platforms like the Amtrak booking system, then you start to see where That's IBM when you start to see this to stuff. It. It's just living yeah. in a different part of the stack. Super interesting. Well, so okay, so you so at IBM you you ended up on you started on AI, but then you ended up on the on the the Hyperledger team, like the blockchain Hyperledger team. So I I had IBM was I was there for a number of years, wore a number of hats. So I helped uh, or rather built the risk and compliance group there. So uh, we were doing AI based stuff for banks yeah. on five continents, uh, dealing with regulatory compliance and anti-money laundering and so on. This is all in the wake of like Dodd-Frank and then 0809. Um, and the subsequent, we saw tens of billions of dollars fines for the banks. And we started building yeah. the initial products to help banks. Which, which by the way, must problems. be such a good, such a good core base to then end up at Vouch. Because we'll, we'll be talking about that later. But in terms of like a deep background, risk and compliance management, great for then getting into the insurance space. Yeah. Turned out, didn't didn't plan it that way. Turned out to be rather useful. (laughs) Just worked. Um, But so, did you did you end up on the on the blockchain team at IBM at all? Eventually, I did. I I found so I've worn a number of hats. I've been product. I've been sales. I've been corporate development. You name it across a a number of different groups. And actually, I found my way into the blockchain group. I I was leading a chunk of corporate developments of joint ventures and acquisitions Mm. and so on. We spun up a new vertical within in, within IBM. We pulled the blockchain business, what was then a research project, out of research, stood it up as a new business even. And then we started building out the Hyperledger initiative along with uh, the Linux Foundation and all the projects that yep. got launched there. Um, we started spinning up the various joint ventures and consortiums with Maersk, with Walmart, with others. So I actually came into that one, interestingly, from the corporate development angle of helping stand up right. a lot because of well, that's all of it was partnership stuff like there was obviously a little bit they were doing themselves working on hyperledger code like that but all the big stuff ibm did you know the maersk one is the one that i was thinking of was all very partner centric was all this like sort of how do you bring people together so the, the idea there so hyperledger fabric you're you're if we go all the way back in time in terms of language here was an enterprise permissioned network so right. private permission network so the way you would stand up one of those networks scale was go get a bunch of the people who had run the nodes and ultimately call easy button your way to the transaction validation. So in order to get those going at scale, well, you needed a group of people to go start. (laughs) So hence hence all the partnership. 
So tell me, I, I, I'm really curious in this. So has your, so from when you kind of were at IBM, A, I'd love to hear about what you thought about some of the interesting projects back then and, and Hyperledger. And then B, I'd love to hear about if you're, if how you think about public versus private blockchains has changed, has matured, like, do you think you hold like a, a contrarian view now? Because I think most people are not the biggest, most people in like the crypto web three space are not the biggest fans of private blockchains. But that's why I love getting interesting people to talk about this stuff. Like, I'd love to hear like, A, what were the really cool projects you're working on that you're able to talk about? And B, how do you, how do you now think about private blockchains versus public blockchains? So I think it's helpful color. So I have built on top of Fabric, Mainnet, Stellar, uh, Burrow, and I'm probably missing a couple of others. Um, so I, I, I built on top of multiple chains. I don't have a horse in the race of saying one's good, one's bad. And we could have an interesting conversation about L1s versus L2s. Again, you're not going to get me picking sides here. I tend to work backwards. I'm not an engineer by background. I tend to work backwards from what is the problem I'm ultimately trying to solve and what is the useful set of tools to go solve the problem. So if I go look at a problem of, I want to get a lot of people participating, let's say uh, Nimble is actually doing really interesting things in the DeFi insurance. So Nimble is aggregating capital in a novel way. They're underwriting sp specific smart contracts against hacks and losses. There is a wonderful advantage in having the public permissionless chain underpinning that they built on they built on top of arb and they're using that both to aggregate capital as well as to adjudicate the claims and ultimately pay them out that's a wonderfully powerful model that no aws stack in a 2.0 world or private permission chain is going to be able to bring to the table yeah, yeah but if i go look at a problem like let's say let's track the cap table of a hedge fund Yep. If I want to go track that, or, or the Maersk, I, I mean, give, honestly, uh, if you're able to talk at all about the Maersk, the Maersk one, one. also, because that one seemed like it honestly seemed like uh, it, it, when I think about the history here, like it was one of the ones that seemed like the most appropriate use of a private blockchain and the most appropriate use of blockchain in general. And I was personally super sad when it when it spun down. Like I'd love to hear Me your too. thoughts if if you're able to talk about it. again. Like you just tell us what you're able to talk about or not, but. I'd love to hear about like you know what was really good about it and then what what kind of happened in some ways. So unfortunately, the conclusion I I left by the time that it it got spun down. So I actually yeah. I've little to no insights outside of the public domain of of uh, how it concluded. The the if we go to why did we go after that problem? Why was it such a good problem to go after? It? And we can actually broaden that to even the the shipping industry more general, or rather trade more generally. We identified a problem alongside others that if you were trying to ship, say, mangoes from South Africa to New Jersey and quite literally from, from Joburg to Newark, it was we had a this unbelievable charge, like 27 steps and parties that all <laughs> needed to exchange information. And this, by the way, this had nothing to do with like payment. This had nothing. This was pieces of paper. These were PDFs that were physically being signed and they were being put into a manila envelope and they were being handed person to person and lined up and if is that right they, they kind of like you, you basically order, took this you kind of they kind of stuck with the mangoes the entire way like you just had this like the envelope yeah, that's of mangoes, exactly right. the entire that's, thing we, just we, moved the we built way. a mango machine that was it <laughs> we, we built the person um uh it was it it was a one one use case but no so it was a really good example of you had two fundamental problems in there one was an interesting problem to solve but at that time unsolvable you wanted digital data Great. Yeah. That's a really hard problem. Put that off to the side. But at its core, you had a workflow problem, which was your gazillions of dollars of goods that you would like to move relatively quickly and know who signed for them and who's responsible for them were being moved on paper. I know in theory they're on ships, but in reality, they would only move as quickly as the pieces of paper moved with them. And you had to get the order of signatures exactly right. Among other things, think about the fraud problems that comes with. So the idea here was, can I move the workflow? Can I move the process of governing these goods on ships off of analog and into digital, even though I wasn't actually digitizing the data, I was digitizing the process. And it's a great example of a blockchain where I can have the, the wet signatures, I can have the guarantees of what came before me and who did it. 
and the permissioning of you've approved it, I've approved it, et cetera. It was a really useful tool to orchestrate a workflow problem that we knew already existed. Yeah, that's super, and super at that point, interesting. It meant now, I guess so what then ends up, what you get ends up everybody being, on board. Yeah, what ends up being the really hard question there is, of course, was so when when that project kind of like ultimately spun down. Like, I guess the interesting question is, is that a problem that people really needed to solve? I mean, that's that's always the question because you you know if you come at this stuff from a problem perspective, that always is the ultimate question: is like, was that what needed to be solved? Um, do you do you think that the so a do you think there is a future? I know we're like we're totally not talking about vouch and all the insurance stuff, and I apologize for that. But I like for me, I love supply chain as a use case for for crypto. It is it is one of my absolute favorite use cases, and one of the things I've been dealing with, uh, like dealing with on like a personal emotional level, is this idea that you know we've been sitting on this for ten years now, and we've never had the we've never had a disruptive supply chain project change the nature of supply chain from crypto do you think that there's still like is that still a use case in the long term is it need to move away from kind of gathering from like workflow and gathering signatures and move towards more of the monetary side like the actual transfer and flow of funds like what what is it going to take for supply chain to really actually get disrupted by crypto or is it just never going to happen Pat, my I asked the hard questions, frame, buddy. <laughs> my, my time frame for this stuff is measured in decades. Yeah. It would shock me if we take trillions of dollars of world trade and over years horizon make a meaningful impact in changing the way it's been done, given that it's been done the same way for hundreds of years. <laughs> like I mean, literally we could narrow East it into trading ship and we're still talking decades. <laughs> Yeah. So it's really hard for me to look at and go, it didn't work in the first 10 years, therefore throw it out the window. It's clearly going to fail. These are incrementally hard problems to solve. So you bite off pieces of it, you try it, and things can fail for any variety of reasons. Even if the core use case, even if the core assumption of what you're trying to solve is a problem, you did it all right. If you've got the wrong people to the table, if you've gotten to the table in the wrong order, if the financial model, because you tried to market too quickly or you sold too slowly or you failed to get the regulatory approvals, you can kill something a thousand ways, even though the core hypothesis and what worked actually is still there and could be tried again and put to work. I, the one that always, I think, cracks me up and probably many others is pets.com was a terrible <laughs> idea until 20 years later when too. it wasn't. Yep, until until it wasn't. So, so you're still, so you're still bullish. You're still I bullish on supply chain. I'm enormously bullish, but but yeah. over over an extraordinarily long time horizon. The the one I'd put right in the same boat. We talk about financial. Your cross border cross cross uh, currency movement. Yeah. When we talk about remittances and so on, that's been since day one of this industry, and we still have not made meaningful inroads. Yeah. But the opportunity is there, and we're still running a thousand experiments. Give give me a couple of decades. I'll take the upside on that bet every single time. I was just going to say to your point, I think Walmart Canada uh -oh. was using blockchain technology. To yeah, finish do they have a project on it? At one point, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I think it was uh, sometime last year, yeah. right? but I don't know how well that's going. But I think they, they were the, one of the big ones to start it off, yeah. kicked off. Do you have an opinion, uh, Jared, about about what what will like if if there is one thing that will be the first like real supply chain? Because like, I I have not had a chance to really talk to someone who's an expert in this stuff. Like, what's the first one that's really going to hit? You have any you have an opinion about that? The not not ten years out, the the one like the one or two years out. <laughs> first off, I think we we I think we're all recognizing hard problems, and and yeah. it's not odd domain. It's like twenty domains just smashed into one of, of the problem of physically moving goods. Trade finance continues to me to be the place where you've probably got the most yeah. straightforward use case. It's also one where the number of banks that actually are big boys in the trade finance space is pretty small. It's, it's tens, not hundreds. And yeah. even tens is overstating it. It's pretty much power law in terms of market share and how much work they're doing. That's a really good example. It's a broken space. We know it from a fraud standpoint. We know it from an anti-money laundering standpoint. We know it from a process standpoint. There's a huge upside there. And actually, if you look under the covers, we're already starting to see a number of the banks do meaningfully meaningful work starting to move elements, not the entirety of trade finance, but elements of the paperwork, elements of the bank guarantees, rather the letters of credits all over. Um, I love it. So that'd be, that would be a one where, where no, I that's expect a, that's a more great call and out. continue broadening. 
Yeah, no, that's a great call because it's it's the it's the overlap of like it's it's finance. I mean, you know, crypto is fundamentally it's a financial tool. So when finance sort of intersects with this stuff, which trade finance, I mean, obviously is a massive use case. Um, that's when that's my also that's my theory too is that we'll see the biggest pickup there. If if we take if we take a, an analogous example, so so if we uh, Israel has a private permission network um, stood up for bank guarantees and the entire Israeli banking system now currently on that. Good example of the bank guarantees were all being done on paper. Ultimately, it's just a wet signature that says, sure, I'll back this if something bad happens, which another bank needs to receive. So good example, strong use case for private permission. Take it off paper, put it on digital. You're good. Mm -hmm. You just need a way of creating the guarantees. It seems crazy to me that you couldn't go and build a similar system for the letter of credit that you have for the bank guarantees. It just happens because it's international, not within one country. You've got many more parties that need to get on board. But again, that's not actually moving the funds. It's not actually moving the goods. It's not disrupting a process. All you're doing is taking a piece of paper and saying, well, if I gave you a digital copy instead. Yeah. That yeah. To and make it easier for like everyone to kind of engage. Wonderful with, yeah. one to bite off. Yeah, I love it. Okay, great. Uh, we've solved blockchain supply. So that's really good. Glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> well, I know. So on, we want we obviously. Hunger. I know, on to world hunger. Uh, hey, those two are related. So, you know, you fix one, maybe we fix the other one. Um, I mean, next thing, obviously, we want to spend the majority of this time talking about insurance because that is your, your, you know, what you are now doing. And it's a uh, massively complex problem. I'll give a little bit of insight just from our perspective. We, we are, you know, full disclosure, like BitWave's a vouch customer. We originally went to a few different insurance companies because we, you know, we have we have a sock. We have we have to have for our enterprise clients. We have to have DNO and a bunch of other professional insurance and things like that. So we have we have insurance that we have to carry as part of being a, a service provider in the financial services space. We went to four or five different companies that none of them would touch us, even though we're not really a Web three company. I mean, like we are. You know, we love Web three. We've got some cool smart contract based products and things like that. But at the end of the day, like we. More than anything, we are an enterprise SaaS company that just sort of does a little bit of Web3 stuff, which was still was shocking that we couldn't get coverage from a lot of places. I assume that that's why you guys, and then we found Vouch and we were able to actually get insurance. Tell me about, you know, why you guys wanted to look at this industry and, and maybe talk a little bit about some of the complexities that come with insuring companies like ours. So I, I had a startup before this. I exited said startup and joined Vouch specifically to come launch this practice. So I, I am to say, to say it's my baby. I mean, I, I am, it is a problem. I, I, Pat, I used to be in your seat struggling to go get properly covered for what I was doing and couldn't find anyone. The handful of folks who I found who would consider it didn't understand my business. I was like, that, that needs to be solved. So we got excited because ultimately vouch 4,000 plus clients backed by Redpoint, backed by in index backed by uh, Y Combinator. We are the preferred insurance provider for Y Combinator and a number of others. Why? We do insurance for startups. That is our entire business. And it started as early stage companies. But today, when I say startups, we insure folks from napkin sketch through to pre-IPO. So we get the life cycle. But more critically, we get the fact that founders are going to continue to push the boundaries of what can be done. Well, that means they're going to take on novel risks that insurance hasn't considered underwriting before. But the role of insurance is after a founder's put a good risk management program in place, they're still going to have residual risk left over. They're going to have things that they can't cover themselves against. And that is exactly what insurance should be doing is stepping up and providing balance sheet that says, hey, you're not getting paid to take on that risk. You're still saddled with it after doing everything right. Transfer it over to us. We'll pick it up for a small premium. Yeah. So when we look at... No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. When we look at what the crypto industry has done, when we've looked at the Web3 industry has done, built some amazing companies, Bitwave case in point, providing an enormously powerful service, doing everything right from a SOC standpoint, the services you're providing, the clients that you have are testament to. And nonetheless, saddled with what I would call traditional residual risk for the industry. There's a regulatory risk hanging over all of us of what is the SEC going to do next? 
what is going to be the legislation on stablecoins? We don't know. So we know that there's a residual regulatory risk that we have to defend. There's risk novel to smart contracts. It's not covered under normal cyber stuff because cyber security insurance, cyber insurance didn't mm. consider the idea that we'd have these distributed systems <laughs> where you can run programs that it was never considered. So it's a novel risk that's outside those bounds. The digital assets themselves, I mean, we can go down the list, but it's a really good example of as founders continue to innovate, as they continue to build new domains and new companies in those domains, insurance has to keep pace with protecting against the residual risks that those founders take on. And Vouch has been at the forefront of that underwriting startups. We're gonna to continue to be the forefront of that. As far as I'm considered, Web3 is the one right now, but give us another couple of years. If space takes off or what have you takes off, I'm sure we're going to stand up another vertical to go tackle whatever comes next. Yeah. Well, I mean, AI, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know how you insure against, uh, you just ask uh, chat GPT. Yeah. I was going to say like, <laughs> yeah. man, can I imagine some like tough, tough situations here? <laughs> That's like a, something um, that I really interesting, like that you brought up. I mean, you know, Chat, chat GPT and all that stuff. There's so much fear behind it, right? Like now, everyone's all scared and and uh, worried about jobs or just. I mean, you got other things that that could be uh, people that are worried about it. But you know, one of our good friends at Sage, head class, always says, you know, if you feel that AI is going to take your job, your job probably sucks. So I uh, I, I don't know. I wanted to get your <laughs> I wanted to get your thought on that of what like some of the fears around all that stuff because you have so much in depth experience in it. What do you think? Like, is this overblown, or is this actually on par of what people could potentially fear about? I, I think it's reasonable to be fearful. I think it's always overblown. The same the same knife I use to cut up a steak can be used as a weapon, and it doesn't tell you anything about whether or not a knife is good or bad. Yeah. It is. It is. A, it is an interesting uh, point on it. So, what, I mean, what does tend to be the hardest part of insuring Web three companies? I mean, you guys. I. You know. There's. It's hard exactly to think through it. But at the end of the day, like I think about some of the DeFi companies. It's pro you probably can't insure them, or can you? I mean, you talk me through. But like, there was just that Euler hack, and you know, two hundred million dollars evaporated. That's a real tough insurance position to be in if you're on the hook. So I don't know if you guys are insuring those types of things, or if you are purely insuring, you know, like what we need, like DNO and and uh, executive insurance and and professional and stuff like that. Like, talk me through about some of the complexities of of Web three in particular. So I think let's get out ahead of the conclusion on this one. We did not insure against Euler. We did not, we're not on the hook for that heck, as far as I know. Co coming back around. So we, we insure companies specifically to the business that we're in. So we are underwriting Bitwave. We're not underwriting the smart contract that Bitwave deploys. Did you guys have That's to change your, one? yeah, as you say, did you have to change your underwriting documents to be very clear about that? <laughs> No, so no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's an important nuance because we will cover. So, so we have our web three enhanced policies are actually a separate set of policies from the yeah. standard vouch ones. And what we did is we took our existing vouch directors and officers, cyber errors and omissions and crime, and we broadened them to go cover against those web three specific risks. But at the end of the day, we're still insuring the company. So that's a meaningful statement. Like, explain what I mean here. So if you come to us and you say, hey, we're doing uh, wallets, great, we can insure the company. But right. at some point, if you're doing it right, you're gonna say, hey, I've got hundreds of millions, I've got billions of dollars of value stored in those wallets. That's not a company statement. That is a species statement, the same way as if you had a safe in your house with bajillions of dollars of stuff in it. You can insure the home but the policy that goes and ensures whatever is sitting in that safe is going to be specialized to cover against that, that enormous risk, outsized and fundamentally different risk profile than the house itself. Yeah, yeah. So you so guys are really clear that you cover the company do. and those services, but not necessarily, yeah, Correct. smart contracts, the so, so, uh, custodial, custodied assets. So, so, so what, let's take it a step further. We will, so within our cyber policy, we do cover against smart contract vulnerabilities. We also have sublimits, amounts set aside that 
we can discretionary cover for loss of digital assets, both the companies and clients. But again, we're focused on insuring the company. So within Vouch, we have Vouch Specialty, which is a brokerage arm. So we'll work with clients and say, look, we'll cover the company. And as you're scaling up, we will write coverage for loss of digital asset up to low single million dollar limits. But yep. at some point, you're going to call me up and say, I've got $500 million worth of value. <laughs> we got to go bigger. <laughs> I'm going to work through Vouch. Right. I'm going to go work through Vouch Specialty. And in addition to your overall cyber program, in addition to your directors and officers program, we're going to go get a special policy to go cover the fact that you get 500 million bucks worth of stuff tied up over there. And that needs to be protected in addition to the overall company. And we could talk about that. It'd be the same conversation, media liability for NFTs. Like yeah. if you're helping T-Swift go launch her music as an NFT and you screw up her likeness, like that's going to hurt a lot. That's different than the rest of the company. That is going to be, again, a specialized policy to go cover that type of exposure. Yeah, super, super interesting. Uh, and a good way to sort of for all of us to kind of keep it in mind is that there are there are like there are like carved out sections of these different insurance policies and things like that. So do you so let me ask you this question, though, like as you guys think about vouch, how how are you thinking about? vouch becoming and, and maybe you're not maybe you're just maybe you guys want to write the insurance and not worry about it but like right now it's you know you're sort of like us in that way that bit wave in the way that's like an enterprise software you guys are an insurance company you're you you dabble in web3 or you advise web3 or you help with reporting with web3 like us uh but you're not say a hardcore web3 company do you guys spend time thinking about what you know do you want to go and actually do uh smart contract based insurance looking at liquidity pools like have you thought about the future of insurance on web3 I mean, I'm sure you never. have. That, that, I've never <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you that. have. <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me, what do you, what do you think about it? Yeah. So there are, there are a couple aspects of this, and and I think critical is is let's let's focus on vouch for all walk run uh, yeah. of what we're doing here, and then we can talk bigger picture. When I think about where vouch is coming to the table, we are one of just a handful, and within the U.S. regulated and writing across all lines, to the best of my knowledge, we're the only insurance company actually insuring web three companies. Yeah. And that is an enormous step forward for us. It's an enormous step forward for the industry. So that even getting that out the door, when you think about from a regulatory approval standpoint, you think about working with our, our reinsurers, you think about earning the trust of an, of an industry that was an, that is, was, and will continue to be an enormous amount one. of work where I, where I see us going we'll call it short to medium term is on-chain credentials. I love this idea of verifiable credentials. Yeah, yeah. So I know Bitwave today meets contractual obligations for its customers to be insured among other obligations. Right now, that's, that more, more often than not in an enterprise scenario is going to be at a point of contract, maybe a once a year audit. Let's go and check that you're actually complying with the SLAs, the service level agreements we put in place. That ideally should be part of an API call, which is have the on-chain credentials, prove to me that you have whatever the coverages are. I would extend this to the cyber controls and the like as well. Prove to me that you remain in compliance with this. That's third-party on-chain attestation that the state of the world hasn't changed that should be queryable every single time you're interacting with that enterprise. Yeah. And that we have a we have a large role to play participating in that. We're probably not going to go create the infrastructure for verifiable credentials generally, but it's a place where I would love us to participate. You'd want to be one of the forward. attesters. Yeah, I mean because we, we we think about it a lot too, which is in terms of financial reporting. So, do you have we have SOC reports? Like you want to have an attest on the chain about your SOC reports? You want to have an attest about your coverage for insurance purposes? You want to have an attest for your financial audits? All that kind of stuff will eventually end up on chain. Yeah, great great use case here. And you guys are and you guys are thinking about that. I love it. So, that'll be that'll be awesome when we kind of get there. And there's it's it's a good point that we don't there isn't really a good uh, broker, centralized broker. No one's doing the verifiable credentials for businesses yet. There's a lot of people poking around. People are looking at it. A lot of people trying to do this for individuals, but it's it's like all things in the enterprise side. It's it's a little bit lagging behind in crypto. That's yeah. You know, that's where we play and we love it. 
Um, but it's you know you tend to see DeFi happens from individuals first, well before you get you know factoring and trade and uh, trade financing on the business side. So um, great. Well, what about so? And then what's what's the next step after that? So that's sort of the that's sort of the attestation part, which I think is a great use case for all of this. What's the next step after that? For Voucher, I'm not sure yet that yeah. that will be an enormous leap forward for yeah, us and for the industry. And we're we're we're, t we're talking months and years at that point of of yeah. work to grow what we've done. Inevitably, what I would call the incremental, building out additional lines, continuing to enhance what we do, the types of coverages, the media liability being a really good example. It's one where we we now have multiple clients who are in and around the NFT based music space in various capacities, whether they've got the AI-based uh, music, the purely virtual artists behind it, where they've got live artists, where they're doing live artists, metaverse combined with physical music, where it's an enormous space and rapidly growing. There is a new risk surface that's emerging alongside that, that traditional policies don't cover today. The media liability immediately comes to mind because ultimately an artist their likeness and how it's portrayed is clearly one of the most valuable things that you are handling. But when we broaden that to consider all the way things can go wrong between the point in time where music is created through to people participating and consuming that's at home on their computer, collectively online or collectively in person, it's a wild risk surface that we simply haven't taken gone deep enough to understand what are those, again, residual risks where yep. insurance should be coming to the table. Oh. Yeah, so that's sort of pushing the boundary on new... Well, and even like, I'd even bring up the Euler contract as a really good example. The Euler hack is a good example, which is like, someone's going to sue them. I mean, like at the end of the day, if there's a business, like if there's a business there, you're going to get sued for some sort of... I mean, we don't have malpractice in smart contract world, but like someone's going to get sued and then that will... that There will be created a... a there at some point will be case law around insurance when you like release smart contracts into the wild so it's it's not it's not malpractice but we do have errors and omissions today yeah and and errors and omissions at a very high level is you said you do something you either did it and screwed it up or you didn't do it and your customers your users your clients suffered financial harm yeah and it's what if you're putting code out into the wild yes we already have this from the open source world even if you open sourced it, you retain residual liability for whether or not the code worked as intended, especially if you're delivering it directly. We know you do. And when you see large cases, ignore specifics, but when you see large cases like with Robinhood with GameStop, oftentimes those types of big blowups where a whole system comes offline, where you say, hey, you can trade anytime you want. And then you can't. Right. Oftentimes, we'll see those manifest as errors and omissions challenges down the road. Man, I'll never forget. That's uh, the most pandemic thing that we all did was just lose our goddamn minds over GameStop. I'll I'll never forget it. It was that was like the most fun five days I think I've had in the last like ten years. Even like my buddies, like all like all my buddies who don't even care about any of this stuff, were suddenly getting into it and buying you know GameStop and whatever the BlackBerry and shit. <laughs> just absolute, yeah. absolute. So that was much, a, so much fun. One thing I was gonna say, say we have a lot of a lot of accountants that you know listen to this podcast. Obviously, how should they be talking to their clients about this? You know, about someone like Vouch. How do they? What's what's some advice you can give to them? Yeah, accountants, so, CFOs, like people on the finance team, thinking about the the risk factor here. So the way I think about it is any founder, Web3 space or otherwise, needs to go assemble a financial operating system for their company. And that's going to manifest as, hey, I need to go solve tax problems. I need to solve accounting problems. I need to solve finance problems. I need to solve insurance problems. I need to, I need to solve in the crypto space, securing the assets. If it's client assets, securing client assets. I need to get my reporting done. And that reporting may be for finance, but it may be different in a regulatory infrastructure. If I'm operating the regulated space, now I have my policy procedure control environment that I need to go build out to go satisfy a certain set of regulatory obligations. If I'm international and now I've got multiple versions of that, and then I've got a coordination problem across all of them, we can layer on further. We can go down the legal route. We can go down the in-house versus outside counsel. Collectively, you have an operating system for the company. Insurance has a critical role to play in. We benefit enormously when our clients are on Bitwave because first off, 
we know that it's one less way they're going to screw themselves up because they're going to have their, their tax finance accounting in better shape than they would otherwise. I would expect the same if you are a CPA who's advising, if you're a CFO who's working with them, that de-risking the company is in the best interest of any service provider who's helping, and it should be tying into the overall program. So when we work with our clients, we like to think of ourselves in a small way as a risk advisor first and insurance second. Because while we like bringing on new clients, our goal ultimately is to support those clients for many, many, many years to come. And we do better, and we know they do better if they continue to exist and thrive <laughs> for many, many, many years to come. And oftentimes what that means is figure out how to not do dumb things. And not doing dumb things often means bring in a partner, bring in a service provider who can help offload something that's not your core competency, but is critical to the operating of the company. And insurance, certainly in the crypto world, has been absent, and it's one that is now available. And a little, a little biasly, I would highly recommend becomes part of the operating system for any Web3 startup. Yeah, absolutely. Um well, great. So I guess the last question I asked, we, we talked very briefly about kind of like the future for Vouch. What about, I mean, just take off your Vouch hat, like step aside. This is not speaking as a company. What do you think is the future of Web3 insurance in general? We mentioned Nimble doing some cool stuff around around protocol level insurance. Um, do you think we're going to start to see, you know, credit default swaps, like those types of instruments that are very, very targeted insurance? You think we'll see more general things like, uh, I don't know, life insurance or anything like that on chain. I mean, what, what do you think, what do you think is the future since you do have the sort of deep expertise around this? So abstracting a little bit away from individual use cases, because g- give me a long enough time horizon. I'll probably just say yes to all of the above <laughs> on, on possible use. I think what I'm still wrapping my head around and it's, it's becoming more evident and, and it'll continue to evolve over time. Where is it that true DeFi base, true on-chain activity has a material advantage over a multi-hundred year business that let's be honest, for all of our complaints about how traditional insurance normally works, slow, it's boring, it's expensive, et cetera, it works pretty damn well. That's why it's continued to stick around and be valuable. So the question is, what is it that DeFi brings to the table where it has a material advantage over the traditional model? First off, capital aggregation is enormously powerful. We've seen so many examples on that. But the idea that you can use DeFi to go create a risk pool on the customer side, capital pool on the, on the investor side to go allocate capital and to, and to protect against capital, that's fascinating. And I think yeah. that has a material advantage over traditional insurance. Well, and, and, and that's, you, I was going to say that certainly influences insurance long-term. Like the idea of changing the nature of, of capital requirements is a really, really interesting way to think about this. Cause I love that. I love this idea of, you know, a, C, a CDS is a really good example of this because it is, it's two people making a bet, right? So it's someone who feels very strongly about the directionality of a stock or whatever it is that's making a bet with somebody else. And insurance, that is essentially what insurance is, although it's slightly, I mean, that's a that's a bit of a simplification, but it is a bet about the likelihood of something happening at a certain point. And so this idea of creating pools where people are buying into that bet on one side or the other, creating a public market for that, that type of, uh, of gamble is incredibly powerful. I mean, it's hard to imagine that not happening in the near terms. That's that's really more of this move, like in all the stuff that DeFi facilitates, it's a move from a middleman doing the work and a large institution backing it to more peer-to-peer kind of market-driven positions, market-driven bets, market-driven you know, uh, uh, analysis of the individuals, basically. Absolutely. The, the second place I would look, in addition to that, Pat, I would look at on-chain governance again. So the idea that you could have claims adjudication as code, mm-hmm. their use cases, whatever Toss is doing on the digital asset side is a good example here. Whenever Toss or what you would place Lloyd's for your big uh, cold wallet insurance, your, your multi-hundred million dollar, your multi-billion dollar programs that sit behind Coinbase and Anchorage and so on. When you go look at those programs, those need to generally pay out real fast. Because there, there is no scenario where you trigger that program and it's not a life or death event for the insured. 
So those are programs where a traditional paper-based, let's get on the phone, let's review it. That may not be fast enough from a payout perspective to save the company. If you look at FDIC, we can talk about what happened in the banking sector, but in a handful of days, really in a handful of hours, we went from failed banking institution to people being notified that their deposits would be properly protected as is feder- per the federal guidelines, and then money back in their pockets. That is the speed at which it had to move to guarantee the system. Yeah. There is an enormous advantage for DeFi for specific use cases of that type of rapid payout, where it's how do we de-risk the overall system and how do we ensure the company survives what would otherwise be a catastrophic event? Yeah, it is. uh, It was, oh gosh, I'm so torn over it because obviously like, you know, like, like Vouch itself, SVB is part of the the fundamental ecosystem. I mean, I, it, it sort of creates this really interesting point where like, because Ycom obviously referred all their customers to SVB and that creates a very interesting single point of failure that uh, I, I think we're also kind of wrapping our heads around. But it was very interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, Yellen comes out and says, oh, we're not going to bail them out and then essentially does do a bailout, but not in so many words. I mean, obviously that's a little bit, that's a little bit flip, but uh, it was really interesting that that, you know, this idea that, you know, you can't let 40,000 companies that employ 10 million plus people not have access to funds, right? You just, you can't do that as a, as a, uh, a country. And so it was inevitable that they were going to get bailed out in some ways. There was going to be some sort of movement there because again, it would have just been a disaster if you suddenly had a hundred, if you suddenly had 10 million people plus, I don't even know how many, what the total number of people is, uh, unable to, to get paid the next week. So it makes a really good point that like, and you have, if you think about that in the more general abstract of like, how do we, how do you create more systems that support that kind of speed to resolution? DeFi does it. I mean, that's, it's, it is, you know, instant draw, instant withdrawals for things like insurance claims. We saw from Nimble, the, the minute that, uh, I forgot they had one, they had one really big claim, I forget who it was at this point, but they had one really big claim, and it was like over six hours. They got it got uh, educated, voted on, settled, and everyone had access to their funds. So yeah, it's an interesting. It's a it's a really interesting point on top of all of that. Well, any any I know we're we're, we're wrapping up, getting towards the top of the hour hour here. What else besides insurance? What else gets you excited about Web three these days? I I am so wildly bullish, Pat, on the decentralized identity space, the the on chain credentials. We have, a, we have one of our clients, Heirloom, that's just beginning to do this for a number of the big universities. And the idea that the next time somebody applies for a job, rather than having to call up their university, their college, and say, hey, send me the transcript, prove I went here, prove my GPA. The idea that I could do that with an on-chain credential, and then you go the next level down, like, okay, great, thank you, good to know you went there. Prove to me that you took the SATs, great. Prove to me what your GPA is. The idea that you could have the line item, the individual data element permissioning, read-only access to prove that something is there. If you combine that with zero-knowledge proofs, now you've got something unbelievably powerful where you can demonstrate the fact of who you are. You're back to owning your identity without actually needing to disclose the underlying data, leave it out there in the world and with all the vulnerabilities that come with it. That to me, I mean, when we talk about this from a banking standpoint, we talk about this from a government standpoint, we talk about it from a healthcare record standpoint, that is, given decades, that among the many, many exciting things happening in the world of crypto is one where I go, that, that is probably world changing for all of us. Yeah. Yeah, it is uh, one I'm really excited about. It's funny, we haven't, you know, there's been a few people that have taken runs at it. You know, a few different companies have taken runs at at, uh, on-chain diplomas and things like that. We haven't seen it uh, pick up yet. I mean, even like MIT was, or Harvard or MIT, one of those guys issued their diplomas on-chain. We haven't seen it pick up yet. I wonder wonder what it will take. It's it's another one of those kind of like long-term things of like, it, there's a big ecosystem that has to build up around it in terms of me as as someone applying to a job. Like I have to have a place that I'm going to go and and look up their credentials that I trust. It can't just be some random ass website. Like it has to be like something that I actually believe in uh, to double check their their creds and all that kind of stuff. And then so there's there's ecosystem be built up yet around this uh, this 
this part of it. But oh my God, for applying for for loans and all this other stuff, like there's there is some really amazing stuff that could be coming down the pike here. Um, or even like doing your your taxes. I mean, I know we don't talk about it too much, but the idea of getting some of that your W two data onto a permissioned, you know, or ZK'd uh, blockchain somewhere so that you can actually one click is you know one click do all your taxes as opposed to uh, whatever the the very difficult process it is today. <laughs> you know, go through that. But so. e- even take the taxes when we think about what what Bitwave might eventually build in this space. If you, we changed the regulations with Dodd-Frank so that as folks are applying for mortgages in order to get rid of your, your, uh, what were they called? Ninja loans, where yeah. you had none of the paperwork behind it. Applicants for loans are now required for mortgages are now required to submit 25 or plus or minus different financial data points. But it's not just saying I have an income and here's my bank amount. It's here's the actual PDF from chase from bank of america with this statement it's saying here's my actual tax return first off that's created this unbelievable paperwork crisis for the entire mortgage industry to go (laughs) store it verify it update it i mean god it's like we're taking a massive step back pieces of that have been solved by the plaids of the world to do the token-based authorization so i can go read ignore the data access problems there for a moment but When we think about the breadth of information I want to bring to the table, the idea that I could have my tax returns on chain so that they're consumable and I could provide them read-only access to to my loan provider, that's huge. If I can now do that and have that travel with me across my whole financial profile, that is enormously powerful. Well, we do. I mean, even we we spend a lot of time thinking about like today. I would say it's it's fair to say today that crypto has made accounting more difficult in the short term because we're still everyone's still getting their feet their feet underneath them. Things like digital identity, things like on chain attests and on chain uh, commitments of tax reports. All of these things are going to start to slowly move that needle to the point where, in fact. This is this is in fact a really exciting world that we are living in, and blog and like basically tools like Bitwave are doing 98 of the stuff all automatically, and you just click a couple of buttons at the other side of it. Uh, we really and we really start to get away from the old old school world of very heavy handed accounting that has to happen every day. So it is it's it's super interesting. Well, awesome, Jared. Uh, this was a delight, man. This was really, really, really fun. I love, I love talking about the supply chain stuff. I know we, we probably spent way too much time on that, but it's something that I'm personally pretty passionate about. It's been fun learning about the insurance industry here. Really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for coming on. Pat, Raphael, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being a wonderful client. Thank you for being a wonderful partner. This has been enormously good fun. And I, I should mention, we'll be seeing you guys. We'll, we'll be at the, so Bitwave is hosting the Enterprise Digital Asset Summit. That is April 25th in Austin. We will, Vouch will, Vouch will be there. Uh, so if you are interested in, in continuing this conversation at all, please find them, uh, come and find them. It'll be really fun. And it's, you know, the, the Enterprise Digital Asset Summit is going to be all about this type of stuff. Just this new Web3 world. How do we push all of the various, all of the various balls that we're all rolling uphill? How do we move them all forward a little bit? So... Thank you so much, Jared. Really appreciate it, buddy. Cheers.